Okay, let's go ahead and get started. It is 8.45. Oh, so good to be here. Everybody's chipper this morning, probably because Thanksgiving is coming, right? (laughs) Rest and feast and life is good, right? All right, Uh, does anybody not have a handout? Looks like everybody does, okay. Very good. So we are going to talk about the Ten Commandments today. And as we do so, we're going we're gonna to look at this handout, but we're going to do a lot of Scripture. So um, are there Bibles on the tables? Should be? Okay. Hey, good morning. All right. So we're going to look at Scripture and the Catechism. And we're going to... As we look at the Ten Commandments, as we look at it in the, in the Catechism itself, it's the first chief part of the Catechism. And Luther was very specific in his ordering of, of the Catechism and the six chief parts. And the Ten Commandments spell out God's direction, right? His teaching how we're supposed to live, where we're supposed to go, uh, what it looks like. And in the Western world, we are very binary thinking people. So, you know, we like to put things in nice, neat little boxes, right? And so, you know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, there is this tendency to look at it as just law. Boom. And for those of you who have gone through uh, Luther's catechism before, you probably remember Luther talking about there's, there's three, three uses of the Ten Commandments of the law. Remember that? It's a curb, a mirror, and a rule. And the curb is like, you know, like the big curbs on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, right? You know, if you hit one of those... What's going to happen to your car? <laughs> yeah, you're going to ruin your, align, your alignment and it's going to be bad, right? But it's going to keep you from going over into the other lane. So the law acts as a curb. And the law is written on every person's heart, everybody that's born into the world. And so that's why, you know, the thief you know, robs a 7-Eleven, and what does the thief do but takes off running, you know? Uh, So, you know, everybody knows these things on their hearts. So the, the Ten Commandments acts as a curb for civilization to keep people going in a general direction. Uh, the second use of the law is that it is a mirror and Luther says that this is the chief use of the law. The mirror shows you what you look like. So you hear the commandment, you know, and St. Paul talks about this, you know, I hear the commandment and I die. Um, so we understand the, uh, the law shows us our sin. And that Luther says that's the chief use of the law. And then the third the third use of the law 
is that it is a rule or a guide for holy living. And so this third use of the law is specifically for the Christian to guide us on the right path, how we should live. And, and the Christian then wants to embrace that, right? You hear the commandments and you say, I want to live this way. This is how, this is a holy life. This is good for me. So that's the easy, you know, binary way of looking at the law. But as Pastor Bruzek mentioned last week as he introduced the Ten Commandments and prepared you for this day today, he said, it's not just law, though. You know, in Lutheranism, we have this very good, healthy understanding of preaching which has two parts. What are they? Law and gospel. Law and gospel. Okay. And so that's, that's the, the binary mind looking at things and going, I like to put things in nice, neat little boxes. So the law goes over here and the gospel goes over here and we don't mix it up and we keep it right. But then how could the Ten Commandments, though, be something other than law. You know, it tends to be hard, especially if you commit the, the sin, right? Um, you know, bless you, you know, uh, do not bear false witness, right, against your neighbor. And that's okay unless you've done it, and then the law kills you, right? I was alive, but the sin came, the law came, and it killed me. Um, but the, the, the Ten Commandments are actually gospel too. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. And there's a lot to go through and not a lot of time to do it. But if you take a look at the handout, up at the top, it's gospel, not simply law. There is the gospel in the narrow sense, and then there's the gospel in the broad sense. So the gospel in the narrow sense would be specifically the proclamation that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose, and by grace through faith, you're saved. Okay? It's, you know, the gospel in the narrow sense is specifically the proclamation your sins are forgiven. Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. His blood covers you. But then there's the gospel in the broad sense. And that includes law and gospel. But what is fascinating to me... So here's, here's the thing for us. We are binary thinking people by and large. We like to put things in nice, neat little categories. Is anybody there? Does anybody think like that? I know some of you guys. I know Schlesman over there. <laughs> and, but so the Hebrew mind is different, though. The Hebrew mind is like in a swirl. The Hebrew mind is always like shifting back and forth. And so they would not just see the Ten Commandments as, oh, man, these are hard laws and, you know, they're always killing me. But they would see this as life. Right before the Ten Commandments, 
In Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So before he even gets to the commandments, it is a sign of God's love and deliverance for his people that he would lead them out of Egypt and then give them the Ten Commandments. So what I, what I would like to do today is I would like you to think about the Ten Commandments not just as law, do this or else, but think about it as God's Word and what it means for God to put His Word in your midst. Because in the Bible, there is a theme that's running throughout that is the silence of the prophets. And there's all kinds of great scripture. So grab a Bible and let's take a look at this. I've got these scripture passages in the middle of page one of the handout. So you can, let's just kind of roll through these and take a look at a few of them. Proverbs 29.18 Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Now there's something else to keep in mind, footnote, that when it says happy is he who keeps the law, that's not necessarily just the Ten Commandments. It could be the books of Moses, which would be the Torah. And they understood the Torah as the law. But how did the Jewish people in the Old Testament, how did they understand the books of Moses? But they understood them in a similar way as we would the Gospels. So the books of Moses were to them like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are to us. They proclaim that God comes down into the midst of a dark world shines his light, reveals himself through his word, through the prophets, and then they have direction. So think about the Ten Commandments in that way. So you have Proverbs 29.18. Then let's go to Isaiah 29.10. For the Lord... And I apologize, I have the New King James Version, so if it's different there... My apologies. But for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. And he has covered your heads, namely the seers. So the prophets become silent. And then 1 Samuel 3, 1 says that in the... Well, and I can even just kind of quote this from memory, but... It says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And all these verses speak similarly. Um, Amos, for example, is a great couple of verses. Amos 8, verse 2. And he said, the Lord said, Amos, what do you see? 
So I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. So to pass by is to give his word. Let me see if there's another really good one. They're all, they all speak the same way. But, you know, the idea is, in the Old Testament, if God speaks, that's a blessing to the people. But if the prophets fall silent, that's really bad. And so, even if it's a hard word, like, do this or else, they would still see that as a blessing, whereas... In our binary way of thinking today, we'd be like, darn, he speaks to me and he's killing me. You know, do this or else, right? But the idea is God gives you his word in order to give you direction. And so the Ten Commandments follow in that way. You have the preface to it. I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of the hands of Egypt, out of, the, out of, Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh. And you're like, okay. God loves me, and now here's his word to show me the way. And, you know, the Ten Commandments, you have the two tables of the law. And so the first table deals with the vertical relationship between God and humanity. And then the second table of the law deals with the horizontal relationship of love from neighbor to neighbor. This comes out in the Old Testament in the worship practices. It comes out even in the church's life today. So as we gather for liturgy, for word and sacrament, it's very similar to what we see in the Old Testament where God comes and he presents his word, he presents his sacraments, he puts his love into our lives, and then in the liturgy, our response is love going back to him through prayer, praise, thanksgiving. And then we are led out of the church where horizontal love goes forth from neighbor to neighbor. And like, for example, so like the word mass, for the, the, the mass for the divine service, it comes from the Latin mitta or missa. And The word mission comes from mitta or misha. So, or the missio dei, the, the idea of you come into the mass and you are taught how to love and the love that Christ shines into your life in the mass then leads you out into mission outside of the church. So it's all connected. So this idea in the Ten Commandments of love is in full bloom. And so part of the catechumenate then is to teach and encourage you to be at the Lord's table as often as you can because the Lord shines and reveals himself to you there through the word and through the sacraments. So in Exodus 4, verse 1, 
Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. It's the burning bush account. Now, why would Moses be concerned that the people wouldn't believe him? Well, it had been about 430 years of not a lot going on with the prophets because they were in Egypt for about 430 years. That's a long, dry season. And so the people, I mean, imagine that. 430 years of being in bondage in Egypt and not having God's word booming through the people's lives. And so, you know, part of the catechesis aspect of this is it's easy in life to get busy and to be distracted. And it's easy to get to other things. And lots of times what people do in the church is they remove themselves and they end up in an arid desert where the word of God is not resounding and ringing in their lives. And Moses was very concerned because of this dry spell of the word of God. In Exodus 12, verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. And what's cool about this too is the Lutheran study Bible has a nice explanation of the period in between the Old Testament and the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus. And there is approximately a 430-year span from when the prophets fell silent to when John the Baptist comes saying, repent. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, the connections. But it's, you know, it's the same way, like there's this silence, there's this long period of silence where God doesn't speak. And so think about this for your lives. You know, you come to church and maybe there's a lot going on in your life and you're struggling and you, you, know, you feel like, I just don't know, I don't feel blessed, I don't feel like things are going well, I don't know where God is, I pray, but I don't hear answers. But every time you come into the church and God's word resounds, that is the Lord stooping down to touch you and to love you and to um, bring blessing into your life. So even if you're having a bad day or a bad week or a bad year, the Lord's love is flowing through his word. Luke chapter 4 is a great example uh, in the Old Testament where the people of Israel were not listening to God's word. And so Elisha was sent to the widow of Zarephath. And then Naaman the Syrian was sent to Elisha. And they were both Gentiles, but... They in, in the blessing that they received, they were also hearing the Lord's word in their lives. So what does it mean when the Lord speaks? Even if it's through the commandments, 
and you're like, ooh, I did that, <laughs> right? You know, you hear, you hear the ninth and the tenth commandments about do not covet, and you're like, oh, man, I did it again today, right? And the law is killing you, and it's shining your, the light upon your sin. But what does it mean when the Lord speaks? So what I want you to think about today is Try not to think about the Ten Commandments as just like hard law where it's always killing you and exposing your sin. But think about it as this is God's way of coming down from heaven and illumining your life. Amos chapter 3. You don't have to turn to it. But I have it here on the handout at the top of page 2. Amos 3 verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, there is an Old Testament concept that is rolling all throughout the Old Testament. And it's kind of technical, but secret is, in Hebrew, sowed. But what it means is, You're standing here and you're wondering what God means for your life. And then God comes and he reveals his secret to you. The secret is the word of God. So the picture is, here's a prophet, long flowing beard, standing here watching the Israelites go crazy. And he doesn't know what to do. And then God comes and speaks to him and says, speak it. And that's the secret. Now, when God reveals his secret to the prophets, he gives direction. Blessing, love, direction. And this word in Hebrew for secret also means friendship with God. It's used both ways in the Old Testament. And... It also then deals with the counsel of God. And there's different places in the Bible. So like, um, you don't have to turn to these, but I can just read them, I suppose. In Job 15, verse 8, for example, Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? And so this idea, this is the, in Job 15.8, this is the concept of, of sowed or the secret counsel where God comes and plants his word in a person's life or people's lives and all of a sudden things become clear. You know, and this, this is like in um, Lutheran understanding of God and, and revelation There's the natural knowledge of God and the revealed knowledge of God. And the natural knowledge of God is where you could go to the Grand Canyon and look out and say, man, this is beautiful. There has to be a God. But the natural knowledge of God cannot tell you who God is or what his will is for you. For that, you need the revealed knowledge of God. And the revealed knowledge of God would be God's word, the scriptures. And so that's why then we need the scriptures to 
enlighten us and tell us the name of God, who he is, how he feels about us, and how then to live. And so this is all bound up in the, ten, you know, the giving of the Ten Commandments. How do we live? How do we exist? What is our identity? And then Job 29, verse 4. Just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent. So, this this theme of God's secret being revealed to the prophets is what we see first with, we see it with Moses, right? We see it with Abraham. I mean, there's different places where you can kind of look back into Scripture and you go, yeah, I see it there. Yeah, I see it there. But with Moses, it really sort of starts to hone in on giving direction to the people and leading them to find the, the messianic promise ultimately fulfilled in Christ. There's another concept that goes along with this. The Hebrew word is yeshar. But what it means is upright or straight. Okay? So the concept is like this. <clears throat> God reveals his secret to the prophets, and the people learn the way of God. When that word is given, it then <clears throat> brings sense to the path and gives direction to the path, and it straightens it out. Like there's a passage in Isaiah, and I don't know if you've ever remembered this or heard this, but there's a passage in Isaiah that says, I will um, lower the hills and raise up the valleys and make straight. Is that at Christmas? Maybe, I don't remember. But I mean, it's, it's, this is the concept of Yashar in Hebrew. So the idea is this. God's word comes, enlightens the light, the lives of the people, and then that word straightens the path. And you journey on a straight and narrow path. And so there's passages here, so like um, Psalm 33, verse 4 on the handout. The word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, Lord, and right are your rules. Now, in English, that sounds really kind of harsh, right? Like, right are your rules. Like, you guys better keep the rules or else. And that's what a lot of Christians conclude, right? It's all about rule keeping, and but that's not really what this is getting at. The right rules... So a Hebrew translation would be the straight teachings of the Lord. That sounds a little different, doesn't it? That's how the Ten Commandments should be seen. They are the straight teachings of the Lord that bring me into relationship with God and provide direction for my feet 
a light for my path. And see, so like the ladies that have been coming to the ladies' study, they've heard a lot of this road, way, path, feet language. But this is all connected. So God gives his word. He makes a path. And then you walk on it. And the word is going as you walk. You see? That's the way you should look at the Ten Commandments. It straightens my path. It clears my path. It makes everything right. And now I'm walking on this path that the Lord has put. And the word is going. So can you think of an example from the Gospels? I mean, there's a bunch of them. So how about... Have you ever wondered why in John's Gospel, and it's only in John's Gospel, that Jesus washes the disciples' feet? What is that about? Like, you know, whoever is like, oh yeah, I want to wash their feet. But what's going on with that? I mean, part of it, it, it's often interpreted as a servant kind of a position, right? It's a servant posture, which is Jesus caring for the disciples, But those guys are going to become the apostles. So what are they going to take out with them after the resurrection and the ascension? The gospel, right? The word of God. So what is he doing with their feet? He is cleansing their feet. And remember Peter. Peter always gets overzealous and he says what? Not just my feet, but all of me then, right? I need the whole thing. And Jesus says, no, no. If you get your feet washed, that's enough. Why? Because they are going to walk on the path that has been straightened by the word of the Lord, by the gospel. Now, in the Old Testament, it's word, the secret is revealed, and then it straightens the path, and then you walk on it. But what happens in the Gospels? I know you know this. You're hearing this language as I talk. What is it? Who goes out into the desert? John the Baptist. And what does he say? Make straight the, right, the way of the Lord. Why does he say make straight? Because see, now it's reversed in the Gospels. He's saying make straight the way of the Lord. And then Jesus, who is the word incarnate, shines in the midst of the people. So make straight the way of the Lord, because here comes the word right in your midst. And he is going to give direction and sense to your path. Hosea 14 verse 9 says, Whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, or straight, right, upright. And the upright, the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. The upright walk in them. But So the upright, in, it is in part, you know, living according to the teaching of the Lord, but it's also the fact that they are upright simply because God has shined his word into their lives. And it gives sense to them, gives them identity. And 
So in, in the Bible, so St. Paul's conversion. Remember that? Remember that account? What happens? He's on the road to Damascus to round up Christians. Now, he's on his road. He's, Jesus strikes him blind. And then he is led to Ananias. And Ananias, where is Ananias? Do you remember the street? Huh, street called straight? What is going on with that? Well, the street called straight is the, the street that has been leveled and narrowed and made right because of Christ and his word. And so, and in fact, I think it's, Paul is on the road, the street called straight. I think that's how it was. So he's sitting there now and his, everything's going to be laid out and leveled for him. So this is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments teach us about God's disposition toward us. And he is giving instruction and direction on how to live, but it's always with the Lord at the head. I am the Lord your God who saved you from Egypt in the hand of Pharaoh. So what was the first written scripture? Job. No, actually not Job, but that's a good answer. I mean, that's, it's an early Job is an early book. But the first written scripture was the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God. Now, isn't that interesting? So God writes the first scripture. So the word is supposed to be enduring. And, of course, Moses messes it up the first time, right? Because he takes the tablets and he's mad and he breaks them. You know, it's like, oh, Moses, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> but he gets another, another set, right? But then what happens then is if you look at the bottom of page two of the handout, Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 4, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. There's the word upright again, the Hebrew concept yeshar. But now, Scripture's placement in all of this is as a witness. It stands as proof. So what's interesting is, the first written Scripture was the Ten Commandments written with the, the finger of God. And so then Moses follows suit and writes the Torah.
Now, where did the Ten Commandments go? Where did they place the Ten Commandments as they journeyed? The Ark of the Covenant, right? So they, the Ten Commandments went inside. Now, if you, read, if you read the books of Moses carefully, it says that Deuteronomy 31, verses 25 and 26, the Torah was placed beside the ark. What it was was there was a receptacle on the outside of the ark, and Moses' Torah was put there. But the Ten Commandments went inside. Now, whenever the people journeyed and as they were going to the promised land, what went out ahead of the people? The ark. If the ark stopped, the people stopped. If the ark went, the people went. That's symbolic. That's a picture for us. That the word of God always leads So the Ten Commandments, it's God's word written down for our life. It's God's secret being revealed. It gives direction to us and blessing. It teaches us how to love. It teaches us wisdom. And in Hebrew, the word for wisdom is hakam or hakma. But you know how it's used in the books of Moses? It's not used the way the Greeks would expect it to be used, where, you know, I've got all this high learning, you know. But wisdom to the Hebrews was used as skilled craftsmanship, artisanship. So the word wisdom is used in the books of Moses for the women that would make the curtains, the temple curtains and the tapestries, the beautiful purple linens. Wisdom, hakam or hakma, is used for the, the carpenters and the skilled craftsmen that are building the temple walls and putting the wood on and carving the beautiful pictures and placing the gold leaf inside, you know, and around to make the pictures. So think about this concept of wisdom. If it's skilled craftsmanship and artisanship, then that has everything to do with the summary of the commandments. Love God, fear, love, and trust in God above all things. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the summary of the commandments is love. So what does that mean? What does it mean for love to go out from one to another, from God to people and from person to person? It means that God's word brings relief to people. It brings love, it, it brings beauty into people's lives. So God's word brings beauty and meaning, and consolation, and hope. So you go down and you look in the church, and you walk by the font, and you look around, and there's all this beauty. And you look towards the altar, and you look up, and you see that beautiful icon crucifix. And, you know, all that stuff here at St. John is 
It was done in a very purposeful way. God, by bringing his word into our lives, brings beauty. And beauty is desirable. It refreshes souls. It gives life. It gives hope. It provides meaning. And that's what St. John is. So the catechumenate, to come and to listen and to digest and to become a part of this community is to come to grips with the love and beauty of God that comes through his word and into your lives and the lives of everyone else that's been here. And so you are beginning your journey with Christ here and all these people that have been here. And so with scripture, there's some passages here. Deuteronomy 31, 10 to 13, the scripture is given that it be read. Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20, what Moses writes is to be the norm of one's belief. It leads us to God. Joshua 24, 26, the word of God is a witness to the people. Isaiah 30, verse 8, it's a witness forever. And Isaiah 8, Verse 1 and verse 20, observe the law and the light is in you. So the word of God always goes before us. It's always out and ahead of us. And so this is the sense of the Ten Commandments. So it does, you know, as Luther says, the chief use of the law is to convict us of our sin. It's healthy for us to hear the words of the Ten Commandments and to reflect upon our lives. But it is very important to see the Ten Commandments in conjunction then with the Gospel and the fact that God loves you so very much that he gives you his word to give you direction. And as that direction is given, the path is lit and made known, and then your feet are prepared to walk in it. And like Psalm 1 is a great example of not having God's word versus having God's word. And that's really what Psalm 1 is all about because it it starts off the the first three verses of Psalm 1 speak of the way of the righteous. And the word way is also the word for road, the road of the righteous. And then verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 1 speak of the road of the ungodly, the way of the ungodly. And then verse 6, the last verse of Psalm 1, says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So the way or the road is defined by God's word. Yeah. Yes. Understand the, the context of this question. I was confirmed in 1980. Mm. So we, we had a different view. Yes. Um, and the, what does this mean? So what does this mean for every single commandment starts with we should fear and love God? Exactly. 
in the late 70s leading up to 1980, I was taught a different meaning of, I was taught the classic meaning of the word fear. Yeah. What, how do you define, can you define it better for me? Yes. So in Hebrew, the word fear was used for faith. The fear of the Lord, right? To, the fear of the Lord is to revere him as your God. So it's to go from darkness where you are your own God or you've fashioned your own gods to God's word being planted right in your midst and now you know who God is and you revere him, which is to have faith in him, which also carries the connotation of fear, like he's God and I'm creature. Does that make sense? Yeah, or is there another part to that? It's probably one of those words that doesn't have a great English. It doesn't have a great English translation. That's part of the, the trouble. And, you know... I know how it was translated for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and the, the fear is like I'm shaking in my boots or I'm going to... Right? But see, the thing is, is like all these Hebrew concepts, like um, there's a Hebrew word shafat or mishpat. And the picture is that, so mishpat, shafat, means judgment. Now, in English, we're like, judgment? No thank you. Right? There's a psalm, and I can't think of the, the number. I, I, I don't remember the exact psalm number of this, but you can like do a word search. Judge me, O Lord. Does anybody remember that from the old King James Version? Judge me, O Lord. And you're like, what? Judge me, O Lord? No thanks. But that's mishpat or shafat. And what that means is, it's a word picture. Hebrew is just full of word pictures. So the word picture of judge me is God is an umbrella. And he places you underneath of him. That's to be judged. To be judged by God in the way of Shaphat or Mishpat is to have the umbrella come over me and protect me from the rain and the storms. So to judge me, Lord judge me, in Hebrew is a positive, wonderful thing. It doesn't. That's the thing. The English, it just doesn't sound like that at all. But that's exactly what it means. So like... We often have this dichotomy. The Old Testament is dun-dun-dun, right? Don't mess up, right? And then Jesus comes in the New Testament. I love you. It's okay. It's going to be great. But what about all those people that were there in the Old Testament? What about the apostles who, before they wrote the New Testament, only had the Old Testament? So see... You have to have the right interpretive lens of all this. And it's Christ, right? Jesus and his cross. You read the Old Testament through the, through the cross. And then it all starts to make sense. And you start to see the mercy and the love and the beauty and the, the true color and the true nature of, of the Old Testament and God's word. I mean, there's just so many examples like, you know, the story of Naaman who has leprosy 
and he's a Syrian, so he's a Gentile. And he, you know, he's, he's this big, buff, tough, you know, top commander of the most powerful army in the world. And he goes to Elisha, and Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And he's mad. But the servants finally encourage him to do it, and he does. And then what happens? You, say it again. Yeah, he's cured. But did you ever catch this? His skin was like that of a newborn baby after the cleansing. So he's better than he was before he had leprosy. He's reborn, born again, born from above. So it connects to John 3, right? As Jesus talks to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. It's, you know, so it all starts to kind of connect together. So fear is to have God come into your life and say, I am your God and I love you. Here's my word, now walk with me. And you look at him and you revere him and as he loves you, you love him in return. And it does cut both ways. Like at the end, there is judgment, right? So a person who rejects God's word and decides to live in the darkness, I mean, that's a reason for true fear, right, at the end. But the idea is, God loves you so much that he comes to you. And so for the remaining time today, let's just take a look at Luke 8, verses 26 through 39. This is the demon-possessed man. And this is a great example of this greater concept of the gospel being God illumining one's life with the word. The difference is, so with the Ten Commandments, it's Moses on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, showing the people the way. But in this text, as we see in the Gospels, it's Jesus coming down, and he is the word made flesh, and he illumines the life of the demon-possessed man. So now, I, again, I apologize because I have the New King James Version. But take a look at this, Luke eight twenty six to 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes. Nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So this would be like the the trembling fear, right? For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. I mean, so think about the parallels. Being in the wilderness. Being in the desert. 
you know. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now there is so much going on in that text and we could spend an hour just sort of rolling through that. But the the background is that's Gentile territory and because there's pigs, pigs were unclean in the Old Testament. But those people embraced the pigs, you know, because it's thought that the pagan practices in that region in those days was such that these pagan priests would go into the cemetery and would sacrifice pigs to the deities, to the gods. And so you've got this guy now, this demon-possessed guy, he's crazed, right? He's out of his mind. You know, the other versions talk about how he was cutting himself and he'd break the chains and, you know, he's just a mess and he's full of demons. The demons are afraid. The townspeople are afraid. But what does Jesus do? Jesus casts the demons into the pigs. The pigs go out and are drowned. But how is the man then? He's clothed where he was naked before. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning. It's, it's the posture of a rabbi to a disciple. The rabbi sits and teaches the disciple sits at his feet and learns, learns the ways of life. But it also says he's in his right mind. And the Greek word is sophrosyne. And the sophrosyne, so sophos, is the word for wisdom. So it's not just that now he's got his wits about him. But what it means is him being cleansed and sitting at the feet of Jesus and now the divine oracles are flowing out of Christ's mouth and into this man. He gets the true sense of life. The teaching that flows out of Christ 
is now changing the way he looks at the world. It's changing the way that he looks at himself. It's, he's changing the way he looks at the people around him. He's new. This picture is the picture of the, the catechumenate. To sit at the feet of Christ and listen to divine oracles and those divine teachings change the shape of your life and the way you view everything. And so we don't have the same fear that people of the world have. We don't have the same view of our neighbor as the rest of the world has. We have a view of God that is made clear for us because of his love. And we're changed. And this is the true sense of the Ten Commandments. Yes, they are teachings that are giving us direction to live. And we are in great danger if we do not pay attention to these teachings. But these teachings lead us ultimately to Jesus. And he shines his light of his teaching and his truth into our lives. He gives us peace. He gives us hope. We find his mercy and his forgiveness. We realize we are new. We are clothed in baptism. And now we, we begin to walk because the word has given us an understanding of how to live and breathe and exist. And this is the Ten Commandments. God shines his light of his word into your life and says, I love you so much that here is holy teaching. Now walk with me. And as we walk with Jesus and his gospel and his blood covers us, all these things are put right. Wisdom, beauty, meaning, and love. So does anybody have any questions about... There's, I know I went through a lot of stuff. All right, so here and then here. So, you know, you started with the Ten, command, with, with the Ten Commandments and then I did talk about beauty. For, since it's a catechumenic class, for, for those who are kind of new to uh, the Lutheran tradition, what does the chief, you know, the, the chief purpose... The, the second use, you know, the mirror. What does that look like specifically, you know, in a technical sense, uh, in the Lutheran tradition? You know, in terms of like, so if you came from a tradition that doesn't have something like confession and absolution, yeah, what does that look like coming, going from there to here? Yeah, so that's a that's a good good question and a good a good thing to to talk about because. You know, ultimately, like, you know, you go back to Luther's, you know, second, second part of this, you know, the chief, you know, the second use of this is that it acts as a mirror. Um, it's always meant to lead us to understand that we are not God. And as it exposes our sins and our failures, it does lead us, as he says, to confession and absolution where we always find the forgiveness in Christ alone. 
I mean, you know, part of the danger of the Ten Commandments is if we think that we can just do it. Because, you know, we fail at all of them. And so, you know, the Ten Commandments as a mirror are meant always to lead us to see that Jesus is solely the one. You know, his blood must cover us. And so we live always in his grace and not in our own works. So, you know, you always have to, you know, think about the fact that the Ten Commandments, I mean, and so like they're, like if I were teaching again, I would talk about the difference between the heart and actions. And I would talk to you about David and Bathsheba, you know, that account. Because like the danger is, and this is part of why you have the Ten Commandments as a mirror, you know, David first lusts in his heart for Bathsheba, but then what ends up happening? The lust of the heart leads to adultery, murder, <laughs> right? And, you know, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So the things of the heart lead to action. And so, you know, the Ten Commandments do function that way, that we must never look at ourselves and live unto ourselves, but that we always see that it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us. And this is the sense of... So the Ten Commandments ultimately... The word of God, you know, but the Ten Commandments lead us ultimately to confession and absolution. And as we gather to the altar then, we confess as we reflect on the Ten Commandments, but then Jesus bathes us in his forgiveness. Yeah, so just, um, this is a basket of question. I hope that's okay. Yeah, sure. So just a few months ago, I was somebody who thought that baptism was sort of just something nice that you did for, you know, to show, uh, you know, people that you devoted to Jesus. Yeah. So my question is, as we're talking about, you know, baptism being a sacrament and removing original sin. Yeah. Talking to other people who believe that it's more like uh, a symbol. Yeah. Is, is hard. And I've, I haven't really had the correct words because I feel like it, um, People kind of look at you funny. Yeah. Say that, so I'm wondering if you have advice on talking to people about this. About baptism? Yeah. Because the uh, tradition of, of certain denominations like Buddhism is just foreign. Yeah. So like Romans 6, which talks about baptism, you're in baptism, you're united with Christ in his death, and you're united with Christ in his resurrection, a resurrection like his. Um, the word united in Greek is symphitos, and it literally means to be planted together. So it's like, you know, Rome's known for their, their vineyards and their vines and their wine, right? So what happens if two vines are planted side by side, but they grow together? And so this is the imagery that Paul provides in Romans 6 of baptism, that when you're baptized, you become unite. you know, weaved in and out with Jesus and you become one and this happens through water and the word so it's it's more than just a symbolic act of recognition of some kind but it that it is actually the gospel where Jesus you know fuses you with him and you become a part of the body of Christ in baptism 
you know. I mean, that's, that's the thing, you know. When you look at all of this stuff, I mean, when you look, the, you know, you, the Ten Commandments are hard because it's, like I said, it's easy to be very binary. But, you know, in all these things, it only makes sense if the blood of Christ covers you. And, you know, so even with the Ten Commandments, I mean, I guess, so let me sum this up, you know. So with the Ten Commandments, it's two-pronged. It's the Word of God being revealed to people. So in that, it's gospel. It's law in that it accuses. And so... When you look at it then, you must always look at the Ten Commandments in view of confession and absolution, your life and Christ's crucifixion. And then it makes sense. And so you're led to confession and absolution, which is similar to the font. You see the font, and you know, like Luther says in the Catechism, I daily drown the old Adam. You know, it's a baptismal thing. And in baptism, we find Christ's answer to um, our transgressions with regards to the Ten Commandments. Yeah. I think that, that Pastor Cruz had talked about that when, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know, and whenever I, stru- I struggle with it too, I, I was baptized as a baby. I didn't make that choice. Yeah. Um, but... You know, it is, it is my work, and I hear less than any man should Exactly. Yeah. So if I start saying, hey, I chose to be baptized, I guess I'm both. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, because we, because we are simultaneously saint and sinner at the same time, you know, these things, you know, the Ten Commandments are always meant to help us to see our own failures so that we find Christ's forgiveness and love from the cross. And so we find grace and mercy. I mean, it awakens us, right? And in being awakened to our own human frailty and sin, we then find peace and comfort through the blood of Christ. Anything, any other questions or comments? Yes. What would you say is the difference between like the mirror and the total crappy console? Oh. My friends have just like been super weighed down by that and I haven't quite found the right way to explain it. Yeah, the total depravity is a, it's a difficult thing. Um, you know, you also get into the idea of you know, like double predestination and, um, you know, in one's total depravity, am I not one of the predestined? You know, and so there's grave fear uh, in that. Um, So, you know, I think it's really important. I mean, in some sense, they have a different understanding of the gospel then too. And so I think it's really important that um, they understand 
the grace and the forgiveness of Christ and just how all-encompassing that is um, and uh, how it covers even their, you know, their misdeeds and their bad actions and their, their evil thoughts. Because, you know, the problem is, is, and, you know, we all run into this, like if we, if we just keep being beaten over by our, you know, our sins or our faults, then we never feel like Christ's blood really covers us. But Christ's blood covers us even in our death, you know, right? Even when I'm dead, Christ dies for me. And um, he makes me completely alive. So, yeah, that's, that's a hard one. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. One thing that you asked that question of what you started out saying is that our minds are very binary. We're good or we're bad. This is good or this is evil. I'm a saint or I'm a sinner. Um, And just kind of maybe trying to explain that mindset of like, that's not necessarily how the gospel works. And you've been explaining to us that the Hebrew concepts of a lot of these things, we struggle with them because we think of them in a binary fashion. But it's not necessarily that. It's it's like a middle ground in between. And I think the uncomfortable thing in that is that we don't understand that middle ground because it's not the binary. And so with your example of like total depravity and like how is this like um, like is it the mirror aspect or is it like how do we approach that correctly? It's something that is like a middle ground. Like, we don't use the Ten Commandments to solely condemn ourselves. We're supposed to use them to, yes, recognize what we're doing that's wrong, but then also like to turn ourselves back to God. Yeah. Like, so our, here's our problem, our, our human problem is we always think of things as going from point A to point B, right? And so here I am, I'm a sinner. The Ten Commandments expose my sin. Now I go to grace, right? And I'm forgiven. So I go from the Ten Commandments, which kill me, to I'm baptized, now I'm saved. We think in those terms. I go from point A to point B. The problem then becomes if I go back to point A again, right? Oh, no, I'm a sinner again. Now what do I do? I was baptized. Oh, no, now I'm in real big trouble, right? And confession and absolution leads us back into the grace of Christ. But, you know, the Hebrew perspective is the Ten Commandments are always rolling around in our mind and in our hearts and in our minds to always keep the proper understanding of who we are in relation to God and that we always need God. Because what is the greatest idolatry or the greatest sin but where I am God? I am my own person. And so the Ten Commandments convicting always keeps the relationship in the proper order. It's just like the Garden of Eden where you have Adam and Eve, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. They can eat from the tree of life all day long, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you will die. 
And so the tree of Martin Luther says that there was actually a grove. This is his view from the Hebrew. There is actually a grove of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Luther says that's where Adam and Eve would go to worship because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolized the difference between God and them. So the tree of the, so if you think about it like this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was mystery, holy mystery. They would look at that and they would say, this symbolizes the difference between us and God. So what does the serpent do? He comes crawling in and he says, hey, what do you think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Wouldn't that be kind of nice? Oh no, if we do that, then we'll die. You will not die. You'll be like God to know good and evil. And so they're like, well, we want to be like God. So they partake. Well, what, what the devil was doing was he was trying to eradicate holy mystery. There is a healthy sense of holy mystery that exists between God and people. And it's always, the holy mystery always reminds us that there's a difference between the creator and the creature. So the greatest sin is we want to be like God. We want to be God. So the Ten Commandments function as gospel in the sense that God gives his word and illumines our lives and shows his love and gives us direction. Bless you. But it also functions as the law in that it convicts and in the convicting, it's the reminder that there is a difference between God and creature. And that always leads us back to Jesus. Yes. I feel like that's um, what you were saying before about, um, so I won't confirm later, but the same kind of fear driven in, right? But the word creation, so Luther, right, also means awe. Awe. And if you have awe, like I personally can't say that I experience a feeling of awe on a regular basis. Yeah. But it's the sense that there is something big and mysterious and beyond you, and that these are not suggestions. This is a like this is this is the way. You may not totally get it. It can be mysterious, but you have you have a fusion too <laughs> to go. I'm gonna. Exactly. That's a great point. Yeah, that's a really great point. It it really the Ten Commandments really demonstrate for us that <clears throat> that awe and our need. It shows us life, and in showing us life, it always shows us our need for God. And that leads us to confession and absolution as we rest in the gospel. Could you kind of explain the deviation between Protestant understanding of the Second Commandment and Luther 1 and how we... Oh, you mean the ordering yeah, and the numbering? Make no graven images. Oh. Maybe which one has a longer same tradition? Did that come out as iconoclastic tendencies of mm. Protestants? Where that difference in the line? Um, 
so that's a long discussion. But, <laughs> but the short answer is um, the Reformed, you know, more radical Protestant view is that any kind of art or statuary or imagery is like a graven image. And, but just very simply, um, the thou shalt have no graven image was like this. Um, the graven image is if a person looks at the graven image and they stop there and they find their source of hope in the graven image. But the holy way of looking at statuary and artwork is to look through it and you see God through it, if that makes any sense. But I mean, that whole discussion itself, though, is a long, like, why did it, you know, where did it come from and how did it happen and why did they order, number the commandments differently? Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today. It's been great. Uh, let's go ahead and close with prayer and then the benediction. Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks for your love, which comes to us through your holy word as you illumine yourself in our lives. Be with us now as we study and learn and sit at your feet to listen, that our lives may be changed. And as we are changed, the world will be seen as your beautiful creation as we rest in your love with you and the Holy Spirit and the Father everlasting, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.